Father, we know and are persuaded that you guard what we have been entrusted with and what we have entrusted to you because we see in your word your precious and very great promises. We see in your word Christ Jesus, him crucified, him risen, him reigning, and him dispensing grace through the Holy Spirit. So we pray that as we go to your word now, as we study through this text that we looked at last week, and as we continue to look at it, we pray that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit. We are blind, deaf, and dumb without your spirit at work in us. We are blinded by the God of this world without your spirit opening our eyes to the truth of your word. So would you work in us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week... We studied some of this text, talking about the themes of shame and the themes of suffering and how the cross changes our understanding of what it means to be ashamed or changes our understanding of what it means to suffer and how we think about our suffering. That is one of the purposes Paul wanted to accomplish in writing this letter to Timothy, is to help him think about how the suffering he faces as a minister of the gospel leads to leaving a legacy for the gospel, leads to passing on the baton of gospel ministry from one generation to the next. But I want us to think a little bit about this letter for a moment from Timothy's perspective. Imagine you are Timothy at Ephesus. Paul has left you there with responsibility to minister to the congregation, to care for them, to point them to Jesus. And you hear news of Paul, that the man who mentored you in the gospel, the man who calls you his beloved child in the gospel, is imprisoned, in chains, suffering, in a dungeon. And that those who he poured his life into like those in Asia we see in verse 15, have turned away from him, are not standing by him. And yet he is writing to you and saying, hey, share in my suffering for the sake of the gospel. What would you think? I can tell you what I'd think. I'd be a little bit unsure of this call. I'd be a li- have a little bit sense of, Paul, it kind of looks like it didn't work out so well for you. Paul, it kind of looks like you might have even failed. If your goal was to plant churches across Asia and now the churches are crumbling and you're in prison, did this really work? Was it really worth it? How on earth should I share in this suffering? If you, Paul, landed in prison and are now suffering this kind of loneliness, how could me, someone so much less competent than you, do it? Have you ever been in a place like Timothy might have been where you have this doubt and you see the circumstances around you and the suffering looks like failure and you wonder what to do? That's what, that's what Timothy was going through. I can tell you I went through an experience somewhat similar to this this fall when I heard news of a man who had been mentoring me in pastoral ministry resigning from the ministry. This is... A godly man, still godly man, a godly man who is faithfully pastoring a church for many years, a heart for evangelism, 
And the day before we're going to get together for another one of our times of mentoring together, he messaged me, messages me and says, I resigned from my church. And you know what went through my head? If this guy can't make it in ministry, how on earth will I make it? I think that's somewhat what Timothy was feeling as he received this letter from Paul. If, if Paul is going through this, how on earth am I going to go through it? And so Timothy had some questions for Paul. And Paul, in writing this passage, was aiming at addressing some of these questions that he anticipated going through Timothy's mind. He was aiming to help Timothy hear this call to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. He wanted Timothy to be able to hear that. And he felt the best way to help Timothy hear that was for Paul to reflect on his own shame and suffering. So that's what we're going to look at today, is how Paul answers these questions that are going about in Timothy's mind and reflects on his own shame and suffering, and in so doing, teaches us how to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We see in verses 8 to 12, a lead-up to the question starting in verse 8 read that with me here it says therefore paul writes do not be ashamed of the testimony about our lord nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of god and then paul unpacks that for timothy the power of god who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Verse 12, this is where we're going to hang out, and we're going to look back and forwards as we unpack That verse, verse 12, why I suffer as I do. Timothy is wondering, Paul, why are you suffering this way? Why is this happening to you? Did you do something wrong? Why is this happening to you? And Paul says, this is why I suffer. In order to understand verse 12, we have to look back at verse 11. Why does Paul suffer? Verse 11, he says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher for what? Verse 11 says, for which I was appointed. You look back at verse 10. For the gospel. This gospel that reveals Christ. Paul was appointed or called to proclaim the gospel. In verse 1, we see Paul start out this letter already. When he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. How? By the will of God. God himself had called Paul to this ministry of apostleship. Of teaching. Of discipleship. Had called Paul to this ministry of preaching the gospel. Just as Paul says in verse 9, it's God who saves us and calls us to a holy calling. This calling was for Paul. This calling was for Timothy. This calling was for all those who have come to know Christ. It's a call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the why Paul suffers. But he also is saying the what for. Not just the why, like, because I'm called, I'm going to suffer because preaching the gospel leads to suffering. But what for? Why is it worth it? 
And he, through unpacking this gospel, he's showing us that he not only is called to proclaim the gospel, but he's called to proclaim the precious gospel, the gospel that's worth proclaiming. In verse 10, he says, Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. And how did he do it? The end of verse 10, through the gospel which is what Paul was appointed to preach. Through the gospel, the precious gospel of Jesus Christ that reveals the death-defeating power of the cross, right? And reveals the life-giving, eternal life-giving power of the resurrection. This is the precious gospel that Paul was called to proclaim. It's the gospel that shows the power of God. The power of God that was at work to promise before all time began, We see in verse 9, this grace and purpose given before the ages began in Christ Jesus and now manifested in the incarnation. The power of God in sending his eternally begotten son to earth as a God-man to die for his people. Paul was called to proclaim this precious gospel. And so he wants Timothy to know. This is why I suffer, Timothy, in verse 12, he says. This is why I suffer, because I've got a job to do, and this job is worth doing. I'm called to proclaim the gospel, and the gospel is precious. The gospel is worth proclaiming. And so I endure this suffering. This is true for us, too, in the Great Commission, right? We are called to make disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them, teaching them, To obey all that Christ has commanded, even as he goes with us. We are called, and we are called to proclaim a precious gospel. We've got a job to do, and it's worth doing. And for some of us, that might be enough to stir us to suffer. But I think we have three potentially unhelpful responses to this kind of call. This kind of picture of what Paul lays out of why suffer for the gospel. If the answer is just because you've been called by God to proclaim the gospel, then some of us will look at that and say, it's not worth it. We have what I would call won't-doism. I won't do it. Because I love my comfort too much. Or I'm afraid of the pain it will cause if I suffer for the sake of the gospel. We look at ourselves and we say, I like my life the way it is, thank you very much. And we say, I don't want to. That's won't-doism. We could do that. Most of us, since we're at church on a Sunday morning, probably don't fall into that category. I think some of us fall more into the category of can't-doism. We look at ourselves and we look at the insufficiency and the fragility of our own personality. We say, this kind of suffering will crush me, and I can't bear it. And so we run away, not because we don't want to obey God And proclaim the gospel. But we run away because we see the cost. And we think, I can't bear that. We look at ourselves and we say, I'm sufficient. I can't do it. I think that more of us, I think the most common category we fall into when we hear this kind of call as believers who love Jesus and want to obey his commands, is we fall into the category of can-doism. We look at ourselves and we say, it's going to be hard. But if I grip my teeth real hard, I think I can bear with this suffering that's going to come. If I go to prison, I go to prison. So be it. I will pull up my bootstraps and I will do what I need to do to power through. 
This is a super, super common way of hearing the calling to go and suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is a way, a response that all of us are in danger of. Because you know what? It's the response that's most comfortable. It's much more comfortable to look at myself and to say, you know what? I think I can do it. And I'm just going to try really, really hard and I'm going to do the right things. And then just bear through the suffering. Especially in the Midwest, we have an attitude, right, of bearing with suffering. But friends, that is not the kind of sharing in suffering that leaves a legacy for the gospel. Sharing in suffering for the sake of the gospel by your own power does not leave a gospel legacy. That's what I want you to see in in Paul's explanation of why he suffers. Because he doesn't stop there. The antidote to our common responses, the key correction that we need to see is where Paul goes next and why he goes there. In verse 12, he says, I suffer as I do because I've been appointed to proclaim the gospel. And then he says, in verse 12, the second sentence that starts, but I am not ashamed. But I am not ashamed. Why does Paul feel it necessary to address the issue of shame when he's talking about suffering. Why would Paul follow, this is why I suffer. Why wouldn't he follow it with go and do likewise if his main goal is to get Timothy to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel? Why would he follow it with, but I am not ashamed? Here's why. The problem with won't doism or can't doism or can doism in the face of suffering is that suffering the circumstances of suffering always look like failure don't they they always look like it's not working even when we're suffering well it looks like shameful failure think about paul paul is suffering well and what's the result he's in prison bound in chains and the people that he's been discipling are leaving the faith that looks like failure doesn't it Think about it this way. I could preach the gospel faithfully week in, week out here at Sojourners and eventually the church could close. That would look like failure to some, wouldn't it? Or think about it this way. What if you do the right thing in raising your children? You raise them in the right way. You raise them to know Christ. You raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and they still rebel against God and walk away from the faith. You've suffered for the sake of the gospel, but it still looks like failure, doesn't it? We could go on and on. There are numerous, numerous ways that suffering rightly still looks like failure. You could pray and pray and pray for healing. And if God never grants it, was it failure? That's the question that we've got to wrestle with. And that's the question that is not addressed by our typical responses to the call to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Right? Won't doism says, I'm out when things get hard. Can't doism says, well, see, I told you I couldn't do it. I still failed. I tried. Can doism, which is usually how I respond, says maybe if I just prayed a little bit more. Maybe if I had just read a little bit more of the Bible, maybe if I'd just done this one thing that I think I probably did wrong and could have done right. 
That's not suffering that leaves a legacy for the gospel, friends. Suffering circumstances tell a story of failure. Even Paul's do. And yet, Paul says, I am not ashamed. Why is Paul not ashamed? This is the question, I think, that gets at the heart of this text. That gets at the heart of what Timothy needed to know to be able to pursue sharing and suffering unashamedly for the sake of the gospel. And this is the question that gets at the heart of what we need to know to be able to do it. Why, Paul, aren't you ashamed? Verse 12. He says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. But I am not ashamed. First of all, for I know whom I have believed. Paul is not ashamed because he knows whom he has believed. In other words, he knows God. He is not ashamed because he knows the Father, Son, and Spirit. And what does he mean by I know them? I think he means he knows their character. He knows what they are like. He knows the character of the God whom he has believed. This character is displayed in the gospel. Look back up at verse 9. Verse 9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Paul knows this God who saves, not because of works. In other words, Paul's suffering in prison is not because he did something wrong, not because he hasn't been faithful, but according to the purpose and grace of God himself who saved him. Paul, knowing the character of God, knows that he has purpose in what he does. Knows that he has intent and a plan. And what this means is even part of that purpose for Paul was suffering bound in chains in prison. And eventually being executed. Now that might be scary if he didn't also know the grace of God, if he didn't also know the goodness and loving kindness of God, as he says in Titus, which appeared in Christ Jesus. Paul knows the purpose of God and knows that it will not fail, but he also knows the grace of God. He knows that the steadfast love of God never ceases, but is new every morning. He knows that's true, just as true, bound in chains in the dungeon in Rome, As it was when he was planting those churches in Ephesus. As it was when he was free to proclaim the gospel. God's grace continues towards him and will not falter. Because Paul knows this character of God. He knows whom he has believed in. Because he knows the character of God displayed in the cross of Christ. Where God said, I will go this far to rescue my people. Because he knows that. He suffers, but he suffers with purpose. He suffers under the gracious kindness of God, his Savior. His suffering is different. It's not without purpose, and it's not without the kind hand of God. He suffers under the gracious hand of God. Not only that, though, he says, I know whom I have believed, verse 12, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day. I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
Why is Paul convinced that God is able to guard what has been entrusted to him? Why is he convinced of God's power to guard? It's because God has shown this same power in the gospel itself. That's Paul's whole argument here in verses 8 and following, right? Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, in which he manifested when Christ himself abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Paul knows the power of God in the gospel, and he's convinced of it because he's seen that power at work in himself. Right? Paul had a very dramatic conversion. He was on the road to Damascus. And what did he see? He saw the power of God in Christ Jesus come and say, Why? Why, Saul, are you persecuting me? Grab his attention, arrest it in a way that couldn't be torn away. Paul is convinced that this same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is able to guard what he's entrusted to him. There's a question In the second half of verse 12. God is able to guard until that day. What has been entrusted to me. But if you've got the ESV or something similar. You might have a footnote. Or if you've got the NIV. It says what I've entrusted to him. The footnote in my ESV says. What I have entrusted to him. Greek my deposit. Which is true. In the Greek it just says. Paul says he's going to guard my deposit. And there's questions. Is God going to guard the gospel that he's entrusted to Paul? Or is God going to guard Paul, who's entrusted himself to God? And guess what? Both are true, aren't they? Both are true. Both are accurate. God himself will guard the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. God himself, through Christ Jesus, will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? Paul has that confidence that even though he is in prison, even though he is suffering, bound in chains, God is still at work to guard this gospel that has been entrusted to him. In chapter 2, Paul says, I'm suffering, bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is still at work. Paul is confident that God will guard the gospel. What he has entrusted Paul with, God himself will guard. But Paul is also confident that God will guard him. Paul himself, in entrusting himself to God in the midst of his suffering, is saying, God, I I don't have this. You've got this. God, you need to guard me. And Paul is confident that will happen. He says in chapter 4, verse 18, He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's saying that even as he's facing death. So he's not saying God will rescue me from this present death. But he's saying God will rescue me from eternal death. I am confident that I am secure in him. Both are gloriously true. And so Paul suffers, but he suffers in confident Christian hope. He suffers for a purpose, and he suffers knowing the grace of God, and he suffers in confident Christian hope. And that is tremendously different than the story that his circumstances tell, isn't it? 
You look at his circumstances, in prison, bound in chains, being abandoned. And you say, man, Paul was a real failure. He, he obviously trusted with no avail, right? It didn't work. Maybe if Paul had done a little bit more, spent a little bit more time in Ephesus, maybe they wouldn't have been so shaky in their faith. Maybe if Paul hadn't gone to Jerusalem, he wouldn't have got arrested. Maybe if Paul had done something else. The circumstances around Paul speak to a shameful failure, but the gospel speaks the true story. That Paul suffers purposefully in light of God's grace with great Christian hope. And therefore, Paul has not failed. Imagine what it was like for Paul to be in prison, facing death, and to know that verse 10 is not just words on a page. Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Let that sink in for a second. Sitting in the darkness of the prison, knowing at any minute the guard could come and take you away to be beheaded. And you know for a fact, for a certainty, that this death that is coming has been abolished. The sting of death has been taken away. And life and immortality is what waits. That gives Paul this confidence to suffer in hope. And that kind of suffering is what leaves a gospel legacy. See, leaving a gospel legacy is not about our willingness To suffer alone. It's not just being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That does not leave a gospel legacy because we can do that on our own, right? I can suffer. I can grin and bear it. People suffer for good things all the time. Doesn't mean you're suffering in the power of God. In a way that points to the true story of the gospel. What leaves a gospel legacy is not our willingness to suffer, but our unashamed hope in God's purposes and promises in the midst of our suffering. That's what leaves a gospel legacy. That's what I mean when I say the main point of Second Timothy is leave a gospel legacy by sharing in suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's sharing in suffering in a way that expresses unashamed hope in the promises, in the provision. In the purposes of God himself. The only way we can have such unashamed hope. The only way Timothy could have this unashamed hope. The only way Paul had this unashamed hope. Was by knowing the true gospel story. That's why he does what he does next. Which is give Timothy another command. Verse 13. What does he tell Timothy to do in light of all this? Timothy... Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. To learn the true gospel story, to suffer in a way that expresses unashamed hope in the promises of God, we must follow the pattern that God has given us in his word, right? That's what Paul is saying. Timothy, follow this pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. This pattern is the gospel that Paul just got done saying in verses 9 and 10, right? It's this pattern of the power of God on display in the gospel. This is the pattern that teaches us 
This is the pattern that teaches us the character of God. This is why we know that even though we suffer, it's not because God is mean-spirited. This is why we know that even though we suffer, it's not because God is disappointed in us. This is why we know that even though we suffer, it's not because we didn't do quite enough. We know the character of the graciousness and loving kindness of God. We know that character because we see it in the pattern of sound words that we have received. We know it because we see it in God's word. It teaches us the character of God and God's word itself. The pattern of the gospel teaches us the power of God to preserve his people. We see Paul's story here and we know how it ended. And we know that Paul received the unfading crown of glory. We see all through scripture the testimony of God's power to preserve his people in the midst of great hardship and suffering. We see all through scripture the kindness of God in returning to his people. Even when he punishes them for their rebellion. It's to bring them back to him. To draw them back to know God himself. We learn this pattern as we hear the word of God. Right? Where does faith come? It comes from hearing. And hearing comes to us by the word of God. We learn this pattern as we see the stories in Scripture. Like John 20 says, these things are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing have life in His name. That's where the pattern comes from. It doesn't come from something we make up. It comes from what has been given to us. And so we hear the pattern through the Word and we learn the pattern through seeing the witness of others. As Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words That you have heard from me. Right? We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. As the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 11 is filled with the testimony. Of those who have followed the pattern. Of the graciousness and loving kindness of God. In the gospel. And Hebrews 12 says. In light of this pattern. In light of this great cloud of witnesses that we see. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Paul himself sees himself as an example. I love what he says. I want to quote it again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Listen to how he thinks about even his own salvation. I received mercy, he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner... Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Do you struggle to believe that God is patient with you when you sin and fall short of his commands? And you repent and want to turn, but you have this sense of, I need to do a little bit more to kind of get back on God's good side? Look to Paul. Look to Paul, who was struck by Jesus on the road to Damascus, even as he was breathing threats and murder. And Jesus didn't strike him down dead. He called him to gospel ministry. Paul says, I am myself an example. Follow this pattern that you have seen in me, Timothy. Follow this pattern of the gospel. All of these patterns, though, are meant to point us to the ultimate pattern. The ultimate one who shows us what it is like to suffer with unashamed hope in the promises of God. I bet you can guess who that is. 
It's Christ Jesus, right? Christ Jesus himself suffered for us as an example. That's what Peter argues in 1 Peter 2. As he's writing and he's trying to convince these slaves who are suffering unjustly how they should respond. He says, Jesus suffered for you as an example. And what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Follow his example. You want to know what it looks like to suffer for the sake of the gospel in hope? Look to the garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus prayed and told his father, not my will, but your will be done. I don't want this, but if this is the way, I will obey you. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus trusted the calling of the father. To not only proclaim the gospel, but to enact the gospel. And then, even at the cross, even as he was being forsaken because of sin, he trusted his father's character and knew that the graciousness and loving kindness of God includes his justice. God is a one who judges justly. And he trusted that God would judge him justly. And he was convinced of his father's power as he looked at death, facing death in the face. He knew that God had the power to raise him from the dead. And so if you too want to know the pattern, know that God has power to preserve his people in the face of suffering, you need look no further than the resurrection of Christ. By the power of God, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. God, in his power and in his faithfulness, guarded what Jesus himself had entrusted to him. And so Jesus himself left a gospel legacy by sharing in suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. Jesus himself did what you and I are supposed to do. But he didn't just leave us an example. He didn't just say, here guys, good luck. Follow me. And you're like, I ain't Jesus. He didn't do that. What did he do? He said, it's good that I go away in John 16. Why? Because I'm going to send you another helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And that's where Paul, that's why Paul says, share in this suffering by the power of God. And in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. That's been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us by God himself, the spirit of God who dwells within you. Guard what God has entrusted to you, even as God himself guards you and do it by expressing unashamed hope in this God who guards you. That's the spirit at work in us. That's what happens. That's what success looks like. Success is not tied To how much or how little we suffer. You don't need to go and find yourself in prison and in chains. And write a letter to your disciple. To be able to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. In a way that leaves a gospel legacy. Okay, It's not about how much or how little we suffer. It's about following this pattern. That's been given to us in Christ Jesus. Following the pattern of Jesus As an apprentice of Jesus. As a disciple of Jesus. And it's about doing this by the power of God. That is in you through the Holy Spirit. 
That's what we're called to do, friends. That's what we do every day, week in, week out. So the question for us out of this text, what we face as we think about this, is will we follow this pattern? Will we trust in the story that we see in the gospel? Or will we let our circumstances and the suffering that we face and the shame that we feel define what we believe is real? You see, Paul, what he saw was chains, right? But he knew that one day, soon, he would trade those chains for a crown. And what we see as we suffer is affliction, isn't it? But we know, we know that one day soon, we will trade that affliction for a weight of glory beyond all compare. Right? That's what we're called to believe in. That's what we're called to trust that's the story that we're called to believe. And it's a true story. And so, Sojourners Church, I leave you with that exhortation. Trust in the story of the gospel. Be unashamed in your hope as you suffer for the sake of the gospel. And do what Paul tells Timothy next, which we'll dig into next week. Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of That is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for going before us. As our example. Leaving for us a pattern to follow. That trusts in your father's kindness and goodness and promises. What a precious gift you have given us at great cost. And thank you for sending your spirit to enable us to walk in that pattern. Help us. Strengthen us, O Jesus. We are weak. We would much rather in our own flesh be comfortable by doing it ourselves. Or feeling like we're not doing it, but it's because we're something short in us. Jesus, help us to rest in the sure and certain knowledge that you, in partnership with your Father, and through your Spirit, will hold us fast through whatever comes. So that one day we too will enjoy what Paul enjoyed. That crown of glory that awaits in your eternal kingdom. Amen.